Embrace life with a change for the better. Challenge your comfort zone with Glenn Miller, your personal comfort zone coach, enabling you in whatever way you may need to, to step outside your comfort zone. The Outside Your Comfort Zone podcast explores proactive and practical tips based on years of lessons learned and expert skills and advice that will enable you to accomplish more. Each episode puts a spotlight on topics and experts in their field who will compel you to action and to get more things done outside your comfort zone. So hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Outside Your Comfort Zone. I'm your host, Glenn Miller, and today I am super fortunate, excited, and delighted to be presenting the one and only Lindsay Perlman. Hello, Lindsay. Hello, Glenn. You are a clinical psychologist. Just talk to me a little bit about what you are, what you do, mm-hmm. what is a clinical psychologist, and mm-hmm. um, you know who's Lindsay Perlman? Okay. So I am a clinical psychologist, but before that, I actually was an organizational psychologist. So I've been around the traps. I worked in change management consulting. So I guess more broadly, helping organizations to manage change better. And what I found there was despite it being exciting and dynamic, I just thought it's not that satisfying because you don't really get to work with people one-on-one. And I knew that it was probably better suited to me um, being more in that space where, you know, I can work with people one-on-one. So when my daughter was one, I somehow by a miracle really got into the Masters of Clinical Psychology at Macquarie Uni. So I did that. I had always a specific passion with perinatal anxiety and depression, as well as postnatal depression and anxiety. I started the Masters of Clinical Psychology because I thought I want to work one-on-one with people. And from a personal point of view, I kind of suffered a bit of postnatal depression with my son initially. So I was kind of particularly passionate. I knew that that's kind of more where I wanted to go because it could really make a difference getting the right help. For our listeners who, like there's a lot of terms around the psychology profession Mm -hmm. you've tapped into there. For those listening, could you could you maybe just unpack a couple of those keywords you've used mm-hmm. there, like organizational psychologist, sure, and and even you know change the corporate side of it. I suppose from a pure types of psychologist profession level, could you unpack a couple of those for sure. the audience? Because I think it's a varied field, right? That's one yeah. thing I tapped into in our pre conversations. Yeah, just maybe unpack briefly each of those. So basically, with psychology and doing a master's. So you can kind of do the four-year degree, which kind of gives you a general level psychologist degree where you can practice, but then the master's degrees are varied. So there's a forensic psychology master's where you go in working with people in the jails and stuff like that. Then there's organizational psychology. And I guess it's more working in a variety of areas. It could be in recruitment, organizational restructuring, change management, talent management, you know, bringing the best out of your people, working with organizations to improve the culture. So specifically, I was more interested in the change side. So where we worked was helping organizations manage, like say, a big IT change or a new system or a new structure, any change for an organization in order for it to be most effective, 
it's important that A, the people are on board, they understand the change, they understand how their roles will be impacted, the communication needs to happen well. So all of that, because it all affects kind of their, you know, I suppose people's kind of attitudes towards the change and how well they actually acclimatize and integrate with the change. So it's pretty macro. It's kind of working in organizations predominantly. Brilliant. So then when I went into the clinical side, as I said, it's kind of the more one-on-one working with people and particular mental health issues. So the masters particularly, I guess it's more a specialized training looking at specific mental health issues, namely depression, anxiety. Those are the, the two main ones, you know, the bread and butter for clinical psychologists because they happen the most to people. Yeah. In terms of they the highest experience of those mental disorders. But within the anxiety field, I should actually mention, you know, there's a whole lot of anxiety disorders. So there's OCD, obsession compulsive disorder, there's panic disorder, there's generalized anxiety disorder, there's phobias. So that's kind of in the anxiety sphere. Then you've got the other ones. So the more the outliers, like the personality disorders, schizophrenia, I guess the substance use disorders. So it's basically giving you training and the training is quite intense and comprehensive. You do a lot of placements in the field. So you do like thousands of hours. So it's really getting you very specialized and comfortable working with mental illness in a very specific evidence-based way. We work with different therapies and interventions that have been tested and have a lot of kind of scientific evidence-based underneath it as well. But I also should mention, you know, they also say Obviously, the relationship with the therapist is important in kind of getting the best out for the patient too. So in terms of clinical psych, I suppose it's looking at more one-on-one with people, looking at specific mental illness. I suppose with clinical psych, you can also do group therapy as well, but I guess it's more specific to people in terms of their psychological struggles. Amazing. So no, I think that's hit the nail on the head. And again, maybe just to parallel that all back to you and kind of cutting through your journey. You were on the organizational side. We're talking things like performance coaching. I think what's quite cool and, and what I'm trying to reinforce here is you've come from the corporate side. So, so mm-hmm. you know, our listeners are going to be quite varied between business professionals, mums. Um, you know, there's, there's some youth we, we're slowly attracting as well because of the mm-hmm. topics we cover. And again, like bring it outside your comfort zone mm. from organizational psychologist and those examples and the background you've shared of of what it's all about to then this pivot over the mum in you moving Mm. to the clinical psychologist Mm. side. I mean, you know your stuff, which is quite cool. It sounds like whilst they're these specialized areas, I suppose um, tying back into that relationship you've just mentioned with a psychologist Mm -hmm. is so important. So I think what I'm hearing you say is psychologists might have varying backgrounds, much like yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably a good idea, having heard this, that, that if any of our audience are thinking of outreach or talking to someone, that mm-hmm. they do their homework, so to speak, across mm-hmm. who they're talking to and which of these fields they covered and which specializations they're in. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you know, just a couple of, I suppose, pointers. The fit is key. So, you know, sometimes people go and they meet like a psychologist for the first time and they don't feel kind of a vibe. I think the vibe is very, very important because they say that actually it's kind of like a crazy statistic, but it's like 70% 
of the therapeutic effectiveness is the actual relationship between the patient and the psychologist or the therapist, whereas 30% is, I suppose, more of those kind of evidence-based treatment interventions. So if the person, say, you know, in your audience goes and wants to go and see a psychologist, don't think, you know, it's, I mean, it's a bit of a painful exercise, but the fit is very important. So I had a episode through the, you know, we were in the tsunami in Thailand almost 20 years ago now. And I think that's what kind of drew us together when we were talking before when, you know, in our pre-preparation that that pairing you speaking of, I just, I do want to just resonate with our audience a little bit that Mm. I was in the tsunami. We saw the wave come where we were was, Mm. you know, people were running it Mm. was scattered. It's a story for another time. Mm. My point is that two years after, like I'm a talker, right? I came back from that trip and Jackie, my wife and I, she's not much of a talker, but you know, we go out for friends and dinners and it was obviously very topical. The world, we thought it was a tidal wave. It was a tsunami. You know, mm. you heard about Banda Aceh and all these different places. It was in the news. Mm. You couldn't escape it. My point is for two years, I thought I was fine. You know, I've spoken about it and mm. you know, any research do says talking about it helps, you know, mm. the mind, get mm. it out. Aki wasn't a talker. She didn't have dreams. You know, two years later, I found myself having the same recurring dream. You know, we're on separate Mm. mountains and I couldn't Mm. get to her. Mm. And then night sweats. And, Mm. you know, I was planning these exit strategies then living my life, you know, sitting Mm. at a bus stop, stuff like that. I felt like I was actually in an abnormal world. And I reached out to my mom at the time. And I remember distinctly where I was. And I phoned her and I said, this is not normal. Like planning exit strategies and having these recurring dreams, keeping me up at night is not normal. And I need help. You know, I had that mindset and I phoned her and I said, look, I just need a name and a number and someone that can help me. And I don't know how, but I was given a number and a name and I went to see a woman and that pairing you speak of, I, I was just very lucky that that, mm. that in, because I felt it, that individual, they weren't interested in digging out my childhood and a whole bunch of, you know, you hear funny stories. They helped me. They fixed me up. We had just three sessions. You know, I remember saying to them, how do I know when I'm fixed? And her response was, are you still having the dreams? And no, I'm not. Are you still having the night sweats? No. Are you still planning exit strategies? No. She said, well, then I guess I think we're done. Mm-hmm. Now I've spoken since then to other people mm-hmm. that have, you know, seen psychologists and for some, it's not that easy. And it's so interesting what you just said, because uh, we didn't discuss this previously, you and I, just like that high statistic that if you get mm-hmm. that pairing wrong, because on the flip side, I know so many people that have tried to talk to a psychologist and they kind of come out of it saying, not, conver- not convinced, you know, mm-hmm. that nonsense is not for me. What's so important for listeners is, is I challenge them to say, look, if at first you don't succeed, try again, mm. that old cliche, but I think it's true. Perhaps they just got the wrong pairing. And if you're reinforcing it by saying, yes, there is a statistic there. And if, you, if you're part of that statistic, maybe you didn't find the right fit. Yeah, absolutely. But then on the other flip side of that, I think sometimes people kind of expect very quick, quick results as well. And sometimes, you know, depending on what the issue is, sometimes three sessions won't cut it. And, you know, I'm just using yours as as an example. And I think that is one of the things, you know, these days everyone wants instant gratification. They want their kind of issues to be fixed and for us to kind of be magic wands. So it's just kind of like having, I suppose, that openness to just kind of go with the process as long as it's obviously, you know, the right fit and you feel, I guess, like the sessions are making a bit of a difference and they kind of providing a bit of relief. Sometimes you have to be patient because when you think about it, people come for a variety of reasons, but all of these kind of things that maybe have gotten in the way and are causing them difficulties are very ingrained ways of being, ways of responding, ways of dealing with life that are habitual, they're ingrained, they've been there for years So it's unrealistic to think that after three sessions, 
you are going to have greater awareness and like a real understanding of how everything links together, but also creating more self-awareness and space to think, okay, well, hold on before I'm going to pause and I'm going to respond slightly differently because I know the other way of responding kind of gets me in trouble and it's kind of linked to a, an ingrained kind of story that has evolved over time. In my scenario, there was a specific event. And -hmm. I think what, what I'm reading between the lines, maybe for some people, there was a specific event that was far grander than mine. You know, I read David Goggins' book where, you know, he was abused as a child physically. Some people have had to endure with mental abuse. I'm sure all of that is a whole different topic. But my point is for some people, it's not as intense as that. Like my episode was a one-off. Yeah, it was grand and big, but it wasn't a lifetime of pain. That's my point. And what I think you're saying is for some individuals, it's, it's not that clear cut. You had an episode. The outcome was this PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a bit like you've got a sore knee. So you go to the doctor they do an x-ray, they fix the problem, it goes away. I think I was fortunate that for a PTSD diagnosed case, it's as easy as that. Um, But what I'm hearing you say is that there's obviously many, many situations that are long-term perhaps. So perhaps it's a short-term approach versus a long-term approach. How does someone work out what is a good pairing? Because I don't know how people land in front of a psychologist other than their Mm -hmm. doctor's referral. And I'd imagine even that we take a step back, often it's family and friends saying, I've noticed behavior change or something. So maybe, maybe let's unpack, like, what are some of the symptoms, the indicators to look for? If you, if you think there's someone in your life out there that has a mental challenge, like, A, how can we look for that and diagnose it as a person in the street, a family, friend, loved one? And then B, maybe we walk down that journey of, of how that individual can land up being paired with the right person. A lot of people say, like, how do I know when it's a problem? Speaking personally, so for yourselves, if you are struggling with something, I think the key indicator for me is if it's interfering with life. So oh, mental I consciousness mean, that there's this thing like I had, right? But there's this, co- it's correct. like you're actually in that headspace where you're thinking about it too much. Yeah. Or, you know, it's kind of like you're avoiding something or, you know, say you're a bit self-conscious and you don't like kind of socializing. So you're avoiding these parties. Because the thing is, everyone, I think, goes through some sort of low mood and anxiety at some point. And, you know, it's not necessarily like we, we don't necessarily need to pathologize it. It's usually just part of everyday life because life is hard at times and it involves suffering and it involves some worry and it involves some low mood, which is fine. I guess the thing is, is sometimes, I guess, knowing when that difference is, when that crossover into the more kind of clinical side of things where it warrants seeing someone or medication even. And that is if it's really interfering with life. So if it kind of lasts long and if it's kind of really getting in the way of everyday life, that's a a call that maybe, you know, one should kind of get some help. With depression, you know, like common signs are withdrawal. So if the person say, you know, you know, you don't see them that much, they tend to not want to go out that much. Say it's a child always likes to do sport or always likes to go and see friends quite social and then suddenly stops doing those things. We know with depression, it's usually indicated by a loss of desire to kind of engage in pleasurable activities. It could also be crying, not really talking. So just being quite withdrawn, loss of appetite, disturbed sleep. Those are kind of the key things that indicate maybe it's not just kind of every day. And I'm not saying like, 
sometimes if you've got something kind of anxiety provoking for you, you may not sleep that well, Mm. but this is, I'm talking kind of more of a pattern, you know, more of like a chronic pattern where you notice a couple of weeks and Mm. they're like, "Mm, something's changed here. They're gone a little bit like low. They're a bit more kind of withdrawn. They're not really participating. Their mood is a bit funny. Like you've seen someone one, two, three times, like the first time you notice a change, the second time you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm thinking about this change. The third time it's like, wow, I've seen so-and-so, you know, before. And no, no, this is like really different. So I'm framing it that way because if, if any of our listeners, you know, you're thinking you know somebody, this is what you're seeing. And I suppose in conversations, like yeah. they're probably more closer to home where they might say, Yeah, you know, like so that change is that big indicator, you know, something's different and maybe what was the catalyst and what's going on. But I also think sometimes it's tricky because I know, you know, teenagers say, you know, you've got those hormonal changes, which kind of trigger some sort of behavior change sometimes around like being a bit more moody, maybe withdrawing, becoming a little bit more, just sleeping a little bit more. I think it's all just important to not kind of panic or anything, but it's just to kind of watch how that goes. And it's tricky because I can, you know, there's like the parenting side, there's like your your individual, it's friends, you know, they all kind of require different tacks. But I think it's kind of, you know, noticing a pattern over a days or, or weeks where there's been some sort of withdrawal, some sort of flattened mood or depressed mood ongoing. Yeah. The longer term ones, Linz, how, how do you think loved ones can help identify that? Is that a more tricky situation? Because I do want to bring it back to pairing someone, because I think even in these, if we, if we grouped it into these three scenarios, you know, immediate short term event, midterm, long term, you look at the long-term one, which I think is probably more of a community-wide issue. If I think of mental illness and how I've heard it publicized, I think that's the group that maybe is the hardest to identify. I'll give you two examples I can immediately think of. One for yeah. me was eight years old. I saw a giant baboon spider in South Africa when I was finished my third session with, with my psychologist. And she kind of said, right, cool, you cured. And half an hour left. And she's like, do you have any other phobias? Right. Like, Actually, I do, right? Yeah. I, I, the arachnophobia. And she ran through some things. And I know you and I spoke about this, but yeah. it definitely desensitized me. I was in a right. situation where the spider was on the outside of my car windscreen. I'd slam on brakes, hop over Jackie's lap, car running in the middle yeah. of the road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one example. I suppose the other is long-term mm-hmm. mental weight. Mm-hmm. Some traumatic events that happened, mm-hmm. you know, one loses a parent at a young age and has to look after other siblings, you know, mm-hmm. and they're so tough and strong for 30 years. And then, you, you know, you hear of these episodes people have. So mm-hmm. that, that would be the second one I was referring to. Well, I think it's tricky in a way because sometimes the person needs to be ready to see someone. I've had some situations where a partner's called me on behalf of, say, their friend saying, you know, I'm worried about her, she's not coping, et cetera, et cetera. And then sometimes it actually doesn't kind of work out because that person, you know, the patient themselves isn't ready, just isn't ready to go there. And I think at different times, I think sometimes even, you know, using the example of like becoming a parent for the first time, whilst it's so amazing and so exciting and such a, you know, an incredible experience, it does and and often brings, you know, that anxiety and that kind of like overwhelm. And sometimes it can even trigger because the only way we know how to parent is based on the way that we were parented. So I guess reflecting on that journey can kind of trigger all these emotions around, say, you know, if we had a hard upbringing, you know, and a hard relationship with our yeah. parents. It's tricky because the person themselves ultimately needs to kind of decide on when they're ready to see someone. If we could give someone out there a tool set 
Yeah. On the one hand, to identify a relative that has this, but then what I'm hearing you say, if that relative who becomes the patient isn't aware of it, I suppose they may have this event in their minds that outsiders can see, but they don't see it. So what I'm hearing you say is they need the presence of mind to want to address it and fix it, but maybe they don't even know, or maybe it's been suppressed for quite a while and then it comes out and then people around them notice that. Mm. But So what I'm trying to cut straight into is if I have a loved one, if I had a loved one that's in that environment, you know, like Mm. I think there's an issue there. Like are are there tactics that one could talk to that person subtly and not drop a hint, or is it something better? You hit it straight on the head and say, look, I'm worried about you. How do they get outside their comfort zone in mm-hmm. that long-term environment where if the penny drops, mm-hmm. that they see, I need to step outside my comfort zone here and maybe go talk to someone. How can that person come to terms with it, I suppose? I guess, you know, a lot of the time it kind of feels like it's in the comfort zone, but we do know that when, when one avoids kind of things and when one kind of has strategies in place that just kind of shut down in a way, it is inadvertently making the anxiety worse because it's kind of saying, look, if I kind of open myself up to it, I'm going to kind of feel all these feelings. And obviously I don't want to feel all those feelings. So then I'm just going to avoid it, which inadvertently says I should be scared of whatever issue that I have. And I suppose the idea is, I guess getting comfortable with not being uncomfortable and being able to perhaps make, you know, make the steps to improve or to kind of, you know, sit with whatever difficulty we have in a more open way. I also saying, you know, in terms of gonotherapy can be really uncomfortable. I mean, I had someone yesterday in my office, he's like a, he's, you know, mid twenties and he hasn't really ever committed to therapy. He's kind of come to me and then he's gone and then he's come to me, but now he's decided he's like, definitely now he's on board to kind of come. You could see, you know, there was like a lot of discomfort with kind of talking about things which made him uncomfortable. And the idea is, you know, that movie Inside Out, where I think a lot of the time in society, people think that we always need to be happy. Everything always needs to be good. and. And there's, and all the, only the positive emotions are what we, what we want and what, what, what Mm. are normal and all the negative emotions are ones that we should avoid, shut down, et cetera. I suppose they're there to serve a purpose. And again, you know, for me, I think that life, as I said before, everyone's going to have anxiety. Everyone's going to have low mood. Everyone comes with their insecurities and their baggage and their relationships from the past. They may not be that clinically, you know, to kind of cause like severe depression, but their struggles. I do think that there is something around like having a different relationship with all of these different emotions so that we can kind of sit with them in a way where one can not be overwhelmed and just be a little bit more comfortable. I always say to my patients, you're going to have times when you're going to be very stressed and you're going to be times, there are going to be times when you feel like really bad and it's part of life. And I think the more comfortable and the more say working with someone, you know, like myself or any other psychologist can help you ride through that discomfort and be able to form a different relationship with it so that, you know, when things get hard, you don't need to shut down and you don't need to kind of run away, but you can kind of acknowledge, oh my God, this is kind of making me uncomfortable and this is triggering me in some way. But what I'm going to do is I've got some skills to take the edge off and then I may need to go and talk to someone more about it or Maybe I don't. Maybe I'm just kind of noticing it and I'm just going to roll with it. I love what you said about 
you know, the more you suppress it, the worse it gets. I think there are a lot of people out there probably do identify with this. And, and that's why you have beautiful things like mental health week. And the point is, if, if somebody's out there thinking it over and over, I mean, I'll just, again, using a good example for me, I, the way I equate it is the body gets sick, right? You know, you get a runny nose, no medicine's going to stop the nose from running. You do get things that block it and suppress it, but the issue underlying is still there. And, and I'm using that example. So I think the mind can be sick for a while, right? And, and that's why I'm, I'm almost breaking it up in lay terms to short-term events that are probably more easier, quicker, fixable in adverted commas, medium events like a, like a birth, right? That no one, no, it's such a beautiful thing. It's such an irony, but for mums that, that have pre or postnatal depression, it's a major struggle in their lives. And then again, this long-term thing is one is identifying it. And then for people that are sitting saying, wow, that is me. Again, what I want to throw out there is what do you have to lose? So I've said this before, and, and I think my second podcast I did on time about you know, I wake up in the morning, I'm a happy person. I'm born that way. I never, I, I think it took me a while and a lot of maturity and adult years to realize some people are born the opposite, mm. right? The glass is half empty. If we recognize that in the people we know, we love, we care for, you know, I'm lucky that I just, I wake up and I'm happy and I'm smiley. And I think you're pretty similar, Linz, but that doesn't mean we don't have demons. And for some people, it's the corollary. It's like they, life is hard, whether it's work or, you know, things were flying and awesome. And now someone lost their job. I think the point is in all these examples, we're all human and people need to be able to recognize if they need help. That's my point. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, one can keep going the way they're going, mm -hmm. but there's always the opportunity to, A, we need people around us. But if you have someone you can reach out to and say, hey, mm. I need help, like I, like I did. And then B is, okay, I'm asking for help. Now, who do I see? Mm. I think drawing between the lines, you know, people out there are feeling that the best thing I'd say is step outside your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you're sick and tired of feeling that way, right, mm -hmm. that there is an option rather Absolutely. than continually suppressing it. And I also think like, you know, when you said to me, what are the signs or how can I tell? I think a lot of people, you know, they have these kind of problem behaviors, which are coping mechanisms to manage, you know, feeling, you know, whatever they're feeling. So, you know, some people may use alcohol, some may use, I don't know, drugs. Some people may indulge in like, I don't know, overspending diet or exercise. Sometimes we need someone else to kind of point it out to us because we're so far into it that we can't kind of see the woodies and see yeah. that it's a problem. So those are some um, of the signs, right? That's brilliant because that's a little yeah. mini list of things people can look out for. Again, not always the substance abuse side of it, but just mm. common things that we, we don't always look for. But if you stood back and said, oh, hang on, actually, there's a repeating pattern here. Like yeah. you said, this is not yeah. normal. If you're saying with your, um, you know, your kind of partner or kids, you're, you're noticing that, you know, that there's some kind of, um, like unusual coping, patterns, unusual patterns, like coping mechanisms, like I've, like I've just said mm. around, you know, really kind of doing something in a very compulsive, very obsessive way. It often may be to cope with, um, these different, you know, these difficult emotions. I think that often, I also think that it's not even, you know, I kind of want to almost create some sort of society where speaking to someone is, is kind of not, not seen, you know, with a stigma or that you've got like a problem and you're not coping, but it's also sometimes having that kind of objective space to be able to unpack and process a whole lot of different things in your mind so that you've got greater clarity anyway. So 
No, I get um, that. I think, I think a thousand percent, like I'm, I'm going to say it, you know, and again, I think we live in extraordinary times, TikTok mm-hmm. and virality and Snapchat mm-hmm. and even mm-hmm. the kids, you know, unfortunately they are exposed probably to more than they should be, whether we like it or not. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what tech's mm-hmm. done. But I think that in our daily lives, I'm saying it to men out there, especially cut the nonsense, like mental disorders, mental challenges, mental difficulty is a thing. It's normal. It's fine. And on the contrary, I think there are many advocates out there saying it's normal. Like I say, you know, there's, there's a lot of different uh, organizations and things set up. And so again, something I'll come back to at the end is like what people can do if they want help and they need to seek help and they need to talk to people, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. I just think it's, it's not okay not to talk about it anymore, mm-hmm. especially when someone feels mm-hmm. like life's not normal. I'm waking mm-hmm. up. There's some of these symptoms mm-hmm. we've described. Go out there and, and look for help. Your options are things will change for the better or they'll stay the same. Totally. And, and it's okay not being okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and maybe sometimes the first step is it's okay not being okay. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead to mm-hmm. a next step. Like you, you know, this example mm-hmm. you've used with a younger person where they went, they came back, they went, they came back. Maybe that was them realizing mm-hmm. that it kind of settled. And I think also, you know, sometimes people kind of come to therapy in a crisis and I sometimes say to them, you know, like it's not always for crisis management. I mean, often that's why people come, but, you know, sometimes you can actually do really good work when there's no crisis because people are more settled. They, you know, they've got better perspective. They've got a clearer mind. You know, it's an opportunity to perhaps kind of look at some of these kind of self-limiting narratives or stories that have kind of evolved over time and helping them say, okay, well, when... When do they come up for you and where do they make life difficult for you? And can we maybe break them down and perhaps have a bit more of an objective kind of view of them so that at least they're not as rigid, you know, we've got a bit more flexibility. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it can be really, you know, life-changing as you say. I mean, I think say using this man as an example, he found that he was better and then he was worse and then he was better and then he was worse. And then he's realizing that things kind of keep coming up. So no matter what he's trying to avoid it, you know, thing like this difficulty for him was, which is his anxiety comes up all the time, which, you know, does muck life up. He struggles to go out and be with friends or put himself out there at work or take those work opportunities. I think it can be hugely helpful for people kind of having that containing objective space to talk through difficulties. Let's cross over to the type of like scenarios you presented with. And specifically, I suppose you and I spoke with the type of people that come to see you might, you know, it's cognitive behavior therapy. I think you said you do um, dialectic behavior therapy, psychotherapy, mm-hmm. you know, schema therapy. These are all big names, but maybe we can just distill that back in more layman terms, the other side of it. If you just relate some of the day-to-day terminology people use who, who end up at you and, and what their life might look like that then bring them to you so that you can manage some of these things and what they are. So I guess I see adolescents in late adolescence, say from like year 10, so like 16 onwards. And I think, you know, at various different life stages, you're going to have kind of different issues that kind of pop up, you know, across those different stages. So people come to me for various things. So either, you know, they've got severe anxiety, which is affecting them, at school, they're having difficulty even going to school or socializing with their friends or um, doing exams. So all of these kind of things, I suppose, for those two population groups that I'm talking about are causing them with significant anxiety or some anxiety and affecting their mood. So some people are very depressed. 
But usually the people I see, you know, they've got some sort of flat mood, low mood, sometimes don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. But it's not that kind of very severe clinical depression. For the most part, it's more like it's actually called adjustment disorder. So it's saying, okay, you know, I'm noticing I've got these patterns and I'm just feeling like a bit anxious. I can't really sleep that well. My appetite's a bit off. I'm not really wanting to see my friends. I can't really focus because I can't really focus on my uni work or my schoolwork. I feel my attention's all over the place. So those are the the kind of main things. And I suppose those, those issues, you know, then say continue into the next phase of life. Kind of the mums I see, I'll say, you know, late 20s onwards. It's that kind of depression and anxiety around motherhood and coping with becoming a mum and, you know, the role change and loss of identity and just putting a lot of pressure themselves on whether they're coping as a, as a, as a mum, as a parent. I also see a lot of dads who may be also struggling because their roles change, their, their relationship with their partner has changed. I can even do some, you know, we even do some like couples therapy around like working more cohesively together during that change because it's a huge life changes, which kind of are documented in terms of those big stress life events. And I suppose, you know, at different phases of life, you know, one encounters different changes and different uh, strains and challenges. So then they may trigger usually anxiety and depression. So in terms of the way that I kind of work with people, drawing on some of those therapies that you mentioned, my main approach is to more work in the relationship. Because I find that given 70% of therapeutic effectiveness, as in 70% of how well someone does in therapy is attributed to the relationship. I kind of work in the relationship. And I also kind of find that when you've got a strong relationship, you can see patterns that come up in the therapy as in the way that person is relating to me or what they're doing is usually the problems that are evident in the session and outside. In the therapy, you can, you know, work with a person to say, give them a corrective experience. So, you know, being able to have better communication or be more assertive rather than aggressive with their people in their world. And so those kind of changes that we can kind of establish in the relationship can then kind of generalize outside. So I kind of work in the therapy a lot, but then I always draw upon, because I think these days people do want quick fixes to an extent. Those are where the strategies are really good Mm. because you can have a toolkit that when you're feeling overwhelmed, this is kind of what you can do. You can do a grounding skill. We can look at, you know, these kind of faulty thinking styles. So people come in and they, they assume that every thought that they have is true. Whereas in a way, you know, the brain is generates millions of thoughts and not all are true and not all are fact. Mm. And I guess it's our job in the therapy to say, okay, well, which are the thoughts that are working for you? I'm not kind of saying, okay, just pick the good thoughts. It's more being objective and saying, okay, well, hold on. Where does that come from? that's linking to more of that kind of story that's evolved over time, which I think is kind of making life difficult. So we work on looking at the underlying beliefs and the thoughts that come out of that and then helping them kind of create more awareness so that at least if they have this really bad thought, they can at least say, okay, hold on. I'm noticing that this thought is coming up for me. I'm just going to pause. I'm just going to take a few deep breaths. I'm going to slow my body down. And then I'm going to do something else to have a different impact. So like a, like coping mechanisms. Got it. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I do like, I, I call my therapy and what people usually do, I imagine is like a two pronged approach. The one thing is to give them like the tools to kind of manage day to day, like in a better way so that mm. life is more enjoyable. 
But then the more long-term potentially is that more the deeper work to say, okay, well, where do these come from? And let's try and understand the relationships that you've had with your family, et cetera, et cetera. Not in a way to kind of make people feel bad about the past and angry at the people who who, you know, were, I don't know, left to their situation. Yeah. yeah, but, you know, it's more of a compassionate, you know, people do their best and sometimes people don't have awareness and insight. And so I guess it's around, you know, kind of being able to create movement around some of those stories that have really mucked life up for them to date yeah. and to kind of be a bit more able to like loosen them so that they're not as, they're not as stifling. Yeah. One thing I just want to ask you, Lindsay, because I think people often think about this. Yep. And excuse me if I'm naive on this. Like the difference between psychology and therapy is it one in the same? Are those different things? Well, it's tricky because you know you've got different. You've got say a counselor mm-hmm. who is trained in terms of you know they could say they do therapy, which they do. They more talk talking therapy, whereas I suppose a clinical psychologist, where I do talking therapy, but I also perhaps have you know, a little bit of more specialization around the specific mental illness. So I think therapy and did you say psychology? Well, yeah, I said psychology, but I meant psychology. Like if you're going to go see a psychologist or a therapist, yes. are they one and the same? But but again, I think you've answered half of Sometimes that. Sometimes not. Well, it's tricky, okay? It's like, I don't know, differences <laughs> in training, differences in registration, differences yeah. in the amount of experience and exposure they have to say the range of mental illness, they are used interchangeably, but I suppose it's like finding someone who works well for you. You know, like if you find a counselor who's really lovely and has a really good rapport with you and listens to you and helps you kind of figure things out, then great. I think there's a place for everyone, but yeah. And what I'd love to stress is we've kind of spoken about almost three, three types of scenario, like a short-term, very specific event Yes. Maybe a medium term, just longer form, similar, like some kind of event. Like maybe like, like a stress at work or something, a difficult relationship. Or maybe some, yeah, maybe someone had a stroke, right? Yep. And maybe someone's had a fall and they've broken yep. their hip and they're immobile. Yep. And it was a month of trauma. They didn't sleep. It was three months of medication. It was six months of rehab. Now yep. it's been three years and they're still down. Yes. Like maybe Absolutely. that's medium term, right? Yeah. And then, and then longer term, which it feels like maybe the result is matched with the incident, because if someone's had 60 years of pain, 50 years of pain, can't expect the quick fix. Generationally, that wouldn't be the assumption, but we live in a world where phones, everything's like you said, it's instant mm. gratification. Mm. That to me, I think just to summarize is probably the hardest, mm. the biggest, mm. you know, maybe as a framework, it's like, because then we said, how does that person seek help after 60 years of difficulty? Mm-hmm. Like one, what I heard you say is you've got to identify that this is there, but that it is fixable, mm-hmm. which means I think number two, you actually have to understand it to mm-hmm. a point within yourself. Mm-hmm. But then third, after you've identified and understood is there is something we or you can do, but you have to be willing to do it. And if you want to keep going as you are, well, nothing's going to change, mm-hmm. but there is an alternative. You can wake up tomorrow and decide to try. Absolutely. And, and I think that brings me over to you, Linz, that if someone does want to try, what are the things they can do? Straight away, I'm thinking, you know, I hear them advertising Lifeline in Australia. Brilliant thing. It's there. Yep. People yep. might be too proud and think, well, I'm not trying to commit suicide. So in that kind of Australian, like, what, what options could you offer people? Because some, some will say, oh, it's very expensive to go see a psychologist, which it is. Yep. I know there's a, 
there's also with doctors, there's a program. I think you can sign up and get an assessment and the, there's a Medicare rebate, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know what the program's called. Yeah, maybe you could so, talk about some of these options, Linz. Well, if you really like, you know, feeling overwhelmed and you don't have any support, you can call Lifeline and you can call other helplines out there beyond blue. And there's a children's one and a domestic violence one. They more like, you know, the kind of, you know, acute response kind of places, you know, we're feeling really overwhelmed, suicidal, any of those things. Um, But if you really want to get help, that's where I suppose getting that referral from your GP. So they'll do something called a mental health care plan and they will um, give you different tiers of rebates. So with the clinical psychologist, you can get back $130 per session. So there may be a, I mean, you can go to the bulk billing psychologist or you can go to other psychologists where there'll be a gap and they can give you 20 sessions now per year of the rebate, which used to be 10. And then with COVID, they've increased it to 20. And then, you know, just by the by, with eating disorders, so people who really struggle with that, because that's a massive area, they've actually given uh, you 40 sessions. With that, you have to go see a psychiatrist, a part of that's very regulated. Structured. Structured, yeah. yeah. In terms of like getting that support with seeing a psychologist, if you want, you can go get that from your GP and they'll give you the referral and then it will be very much the GP and the, the psychologist will be, you know, work collaboratively together to, to help you. If say a psychologist then says, look, you know, I'm, I'm kind of worried. I'm seeing like this therapy is may, maybe not enough just coming here with, you know, to see me every week. I'm going to kind of refer you on to a psychiatrist and then you'll go back to your GP and then you can get a referral for a psychiatrist or the GP can maybe give some medication as well, which sometimes, you know, and I'm quite conservative in the way that I work, but sometimes I say medication does work to kind of help kind of feel a bit more stable, level out your baseline so that at least all the work that we can do in terms of the talking therapy can be more useful. I also think, Glenn, I mean, you know, I always say back to basics, you know, if you, is the person exercising, how's their appetite been, how's their sleep, because all of those things, you know, in a way we kind of need to have them fairly stable. I mean, you're not Mm. going to eat perfectly, but at least that's also important, I would say, for any listener today to kind of think, okay, well, how is that? And let me maybe see if I can kind of make some changes because I'm like a big fan of exercise. I know you exercise a lot just for the mood. So if you can kind of like do that anyway, as an interim before even you go, you know, you, you get the help you need. I think that in a way can really like take the edge off. Awesome, Lynn. So I, and again, I think like in closing mm. people, there are things you can do both for the patient, the love around you, but just give it a go. So you know, like you just said, Linz, if you notice someone or you identify with someone out there that you think mentally is struggling, mm-hmm. then take them for a walk, invite them for a coffee, get them out of their, their zone, you know, their comfort zone and, and into something a little unfamiliar because that might actually resolve certain things. It might, yep. you know, depending on how drastic. Yep. And then lastly, we live in Australia, but even for our global listeners, so, so you're here in Australia, we, you know, we're just very fortunate. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of these structures set up. So one to anyone outside of Australia, look for your similar bipartisan um, line in, in your local area. But yep. also I think the point is just do just ask for help. You know, and I think you'd be amazed that in Australia, we've got all these great channels and rebates and the structures there. But if you live in a world where you don't, um, you know, that doesn't mean you can't talk about it and people around you can certainly help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I think you'd be surprised. I mean, never judge. Everyone's going through some sort of battle and, and you know, it may look good on their outside. And But everyone everyone struggles with something, I believe. Everyone. There's, there's, there's always. So I think yeah. just, just getting help, I mean, it can be life-changing. 
So, Linz, thanks so much. That was, like, so cool. Oh, great. Well, you know, there is. There's, like, just so much that I suppose we can cover, but I'm hoping at least it, like, provides a good start for people who – have never really thought about seeing a psychologist or maybe, you know, been wondering but not knowing kind of how to do it. Just tell us how people get in touch with you. How do they find you? Uh, okay. Mention your website, please. So um, my my practice is called In Focus Psychology. In so Focus. In Focus, one word. Psychology. Psychology. Great. So the website is www.infocuspsychology.com. Yes. And then in there, there's a drop down. I think it's called contact us. Yes, yes it is. So just, you know, you can just type your name, your email and write a couple of things. If you want to I kind of always um, I say I offer a 15 minute free phone consult yeah. just to kind of have a chat around, you know, like what's happening um, and maybe, you know, see if booking a session is something um, that could be good. So always open to that. So that, that's probably the best way of, um, of being in contact. And I'm going to say, Linz, on that note, if we've affected one person, yep. let's help them call to action. We've achieved our goal today uh, and through this podcast. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really look forward to having you back. I hope we do because I yeah. think there's so many little rabbit holes we didn't go down that we could have. And I just really look forward to having you back next time. So thanks Wonderful. so much, Linz. Thanks, Glenn. I hope the listeners found today helpful. Thanks for listening to Outside Your Comfort Zone with Glenn Miller, your comfort zone coach. If you like what you hear, help spread the word. Subscribe to the podcast and invite a friend. For show notes, links and extra goodies, visit comfortzonecoach.com.au.